Perfect. Uh, then I guess we'll get started. So hello everyone, welcome back to the show. And today we have Mr. Jaden Heiler and Mr. Tom Wilson, who are founders at the Game Creator, which is a a video game newspaper in Australia, which is very interesting. So instead of me doing a presentation for Mr. Heiler and Mr. Wilson, I guess it would be more appropriate for them to do their own introductions. Am I right? Yeah, go for it. That's yeah. fun. You can start, Tom. Oh, I can start. Thank you. Uh, well, I am the editor-in-chief at the Game Creator. Uh, I do news, reviews, opinions, pretty much anything that needs doing. I joined uh, back in, I think, November, end of November, December. And uh, it's been a lot of fun ever since. And Mr. Heiler? Um, yeah, so I started the Game Creator back in June. And basically, it just started off as just me writing a blog because there was nowhere else to really really write it like i i didn't really i started from nothing and didn't really know where what i was going to do i just wanted to write about games pretty much that simple and there wasn't really an opportunity for others to write like it wasn't really easy for me to just go out and write about games so basically i decided to you know start a blog that turned into a website make the game creator and that's where i am now so fantastic and um, actually, I knew this from uh, Bromo, which is one of your writers, which also came onto the show to talk about a very different topic. But um, just to make this clear, uh, he 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 said you're basically a millionaire who is looking to buy a second house uh, when you're only 24 years old. Is that correct? Uh, it's, it's definitely not correct. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I'm. I just had it my birthday the other day, so I'm technically 25. But no, I'm far from being a millionaire. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, happy uh, a happy belated birthday to you. And uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I I know Bromor tend to exaggerate uh, things a bit, so I I'm glad that's out of the way. Um, <laughs> um and uh, for Mr. Wilson, uh, uh, Bromor also said that um you. Finished. Uh, you got a master in journalism at the age of twenty-two. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, but that's not that abnormal in the UK. Uh, most people who go to uni do a master's pretty much straight afterwards. Okay, yeah, I see. I see. And uh, what made you uh, want to go into a video game journalism instead of a more traditional journalism, for example, uh, at the BBC or at any other um... big UK? Uh, I mean, I love video games. It kind of made sense to do that. Uh, yeah, I did when I did uh, journalism at university. Um, basically, we did kind of the more traditional form of journalism, so like political journalism and kind of uh, like local journalism. And as much as it's sort of interesting to talk to like my local council and that sort of thing, uh, it basically just like wasn't that exciting to write. And then I was doing my own kind of film blog at the same time, uh, which I really enjoyed doing. And then when I saw the opportunity to join the game creator, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I love video games. I've talked about video games. Uh, so it kind of just worked out that way, really. It's just more exciting. Okay, I see. And I guess, uh, Mr. Heiler, you already explained that you were interested in video games because you just like it and you just want a place to write. So you started a game creator. Yeah, pretty much. I just love video games my whole life, really. So it just seemed, you know, I just wanted to start writing about them. So I thought, you know, just why not do it? Pretty much that. That's great. All right, then. 
My question is for、uh, both of you. Actually, what is it like to start out just like making a a website that's also, I guess, now it's monetized. So, what's it start out like?、Um, running a almost a startup. Uh, so it's rough. Obviously, it's、yeah. going to be hard. You, um, at the moment, the game creator doesn't make doesn't make a profit. Um, but you know that's that's the reality of the situation. Unfortunately, I think everyone starting a business has to pay. You know, to get somewhere, and that's just the way it is. So. I do enjoy it, and that is what keeps it going. So it's definitely more of a passion thing、um, rather than profit at the moment.、Um, but obviously, one day, hope to turn that around and make become both. That would be great. And、uh, Mr. Wilson,、uh, yeah, I feel like it's、uh, you put in a lot of effort. You don't get much out. So if you don't enjoy doing it, it's、uh, it can be very kind of exhausting and very grueling. But I feel like. You know, you're kind of working towards something, and with us, even over like the past couple of months, we've seen、uh, a good amount of growth. We've seen kind of contacts with people, and and kind of、um, more interaction on like social media and stuff. And even though it's not getting paid, it's still kind of nice recognition, and you're getting people commenting on your articles and whatever. And that's kind of fun and exciting. So, yeah, you put in a lot of effort to get not much out of it, but it's so long as you. Can muster the motivation and enjoy what you're doing. Then, yeah, I think it's difficult. It's rough, but it can be fun. Yeah, it's little moments. The little moments just make yeah, it worth definitely. it. Yeah, the little rewarding moments, basically. Yeah. Okay. Um. Then, since I I guess you two are really based on your passion for video games, which、uh, I'm also passionate about. That's why I'm doing this interview in the first place. Uh. So my my question would be. What aspects of this process that you enjoy the most, and what are some other aspects that you find the most difficult? Um, I think writing opinion pieces is probably the most enjoyable because you basically just get to say whatever you want, and it's kind of that's the most fun. I mean, obviously, it involves a lot of research, but that's definitely enjoyable. And I think you know, getting codes from developers and being able to try out games kind of before they come out—that's really exciting too. I think.、Um, The probably the most difficult part of it,、uh, at least for me, kind of on the writing side, is kind of doing news and kind of having this constant battle with trying to do news that's relevant and kind of trying to stay at the top when you've got people like IGN and Eurogamer and all that kind of covering it like well in advance. That can be kind of self-defeating in a way. But I imagine、uh, from the kind of behind-the-scenes side of things, there's probably a bit more. Bit more difficulty there, Ajaden. I think it's yeah, especially with the whole IGN Eurogamer thing. It's even if we cover it, that, that, I think that's the hardest part. Sometimes even if we cover something, no matter what, if they cover it an hour late, they're going to always overtake us and everything like that. But that's just the reality of the situation. They've been going a lot longer, and that is that's just how it is. It's just that's how、um, the algorithms work and everything like that. But I think, yeah, like Tom said, it is rewarding to, you know, good to play games before they come out and all that stuff. It's nice to have. I think that was probably one of the most exciting things for me, especially when I first started doing it. Like when I got sent a game ahead of time before it came out, I was like, 
I don't know if you can swear on this, but I was like, oh my god. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, it's okay. I'll, I will try to edit it out. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I'll try not to swear. Um, yeah, so I was just like, oh my god, you know, this is awesome and stuff like that. So I got really excited. And yeah, that was definitely one of the most rewarding things. Um, and it's, yeah, just little things like that, like I mentioned earlier, just make things all worth it, really. Okay, I see. Yeah, I, I really see why you guys would enjoy doing this then. And uh, uh, before we move on to more journalism and industry type of uh, questions, uh, any advice for young people looking to go into business and what advice can you give them? Tough. <laughs> it's always gonna be it's always gonna be hard at, yeah it's always gonna be hard to start um i think yeah if you're passionate about something definitely go and do it but it's gonna be i think yeah i think a lot of people skip over like when you see a lot of the you know motivational things a lot of people skip over you know like if you've got a passion go do it do this and that but i think the biggest thing is you just gotta not give up really i yeah. think at the end of the day if you keep doing what you love and you keep pushing through, um, you just got to not give up. Because I think eventually, if you do something for long enough, it'll eventually, and it'll eventually just keep going. Especially with like you know, um, like YouTube, you know, any of your social medias or anything, a website. As long as you just keep going, I think it'll just work out. That's just how it is. You just got to not stop. Because I think if you stop you're going to regret it and it's, you know, you're never going to not know where it could have been. And when you stop, it's all done. But if you keep going, I think you just got to push past it. And... So it's like, um, if you stop, you're never going to know if you're going to make it or not. So you better just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think if, if you want something bad enough, you're always going to make it. And if you work hard enough, you're always going to get there. It's hard to speak now because we haven't really got to the point where it's made it profitable, but we have seen um, like a dramatic increase in the last, you know, six months, especially even since we started because we only started uh, around 10 months ago. Um, and even in that short period of time, we've like grown dramatically in that time. And yeah, I think if anyone, you know, is interested in push like pursuing a passion, I definitely recommend doing it i see and uh i guess for mr wilson you're you have similar advice yeah uh you just gotta have a a, a good work ethic you know like it can be difficult uh especially when you see all these like bigger kind of companies uh doing it and you know they have the resources and the staff and whatnot but if you have good motivation and uh, as Jaden said like just don't give up on it because it's so easy to just be like oh i'm not going to do it today or whatever or you know I'll I'll leave it for a week or whatever, but I feel like if you if you really stick with it, um, yeah, you'll see you'll see changes, and it will be slow and it will be difficult at times, but I definitely think uh, sticking with it will always pay off. Okay, I see. And uh, just a sub question to the advice question. So, um, how did you decide, especially Mr. Wilson? How did you decide uh, between a more traditional career, for example, going to into like the more expected type of journalism rather than going to like a more a more bizarre sort of not non-traditional video game journalism so what made you to decide to go into a uh forging your own path versus a traditional career uh i feel like this one's kind of like simple it's basically just 
you kind of get more freedom. There's more kind of like you do the kind of articles that you want to do. You cover the kind of games that you want to cover, you know, um, kind of doing the more traditional stuff. That stuff's like sponsored. So they'll get sent specific posts that they have to put up regardless of whether or not it's something that interests them. Whereas with us, we can be kind of more selective. We can see a game and go, well, maybe that doesn't fit with our kind of interests or whatever. And so we we kind of have a bit more freedom in that. You know, we can post articles. Uh, I've been on a bit of a tirade against Nintendo lately. You know, we can we can post those kind of articles, have that kind of freedom, and I guess kind of cater more towards a, a niche, but in a way that like is what kind of meets our interests, which is just more freeing. Uh, and I think that's more interesting than than doing kind of more mainstream stuff. In saying that, there's nothing wrong with doing mainstream stuff. I think mainstream stuff is super important and i think you know you still get a lot of great articles out of the bigger kind of um platforms but i, I don't know i think doing this kind of smaller more niche stuff definitely more interesting uh, and more freeing okay i see and um mr heiler that's you jade yeah <laughs> you sorry else yeah, it's okay <laughs> uh, i didn't really <clears throat> sorry i just cut out when you were like when you spoke so i didn't quite hear what no, you it's said. okay um <laughs> um yeah no i don't really have too much to add on that i think yeah i just sort of lost it a bit when um he mentioned his uh turret against nintendo that's been a funny thing to witness lately but (laughs) um yeah i don't really have much uh tom pretty much summed it all up that's great okay well then let's move on to more uh the journalism type of things so what is the difference between a major news outlet covering video games and a small, let's say, uh, indie outlet covering video games? Um, I think the difference, I think the difference really lies in the fact that they're they're always gonna have it before us, um, which unfortunately is the hardest part about covering a lot of the major ones, like Tom touched on just before. When you're covering the tr- like the AAA titles and stuff like that, the major news outlets. They got a lot of that information ahead of time. Um, so that's what actually makes it quite hard for the small indie outlets covering games. But at the same time, I think a lot of the major news outlets, especially these days without taking a dig at them a lot, but um, they're a lot more like they're going to say exactly what the news is and that's sort of what it's turned into. Whereas if you get smaller indie outlets, at least, some of them will at least give you an opinion. Whether it be a strong opinion or a weak opinion or not, you're always going to get a little bit more rather than a basic sort of press release that, say, IGN or something that's going to have. It's just going to be flat with sort of no emotion, but they can pump it out because they're just so big. Whereas, yeah, if you get your indie one, it's just going to be people covering it purely on the fact they love the game at the end of the day. Because if you get RGN, they're pretty much, they're sent these ones, they're normally in partnership or at least close with the other news outlets and they're going to put it up just because, you know, they can. Whereas the indie outlet isn't going to be able to cover everything. So the games they cover are going to be ones they're passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, like kind of touching on what you were saying, like we have quite a small writing team, especially in comparison to like IGN or whatever. Like I'll I'll do um, a big portion of the news, and so you'll get a lot more kind of personality from our writing, say, than from something like IGN. Like 
you'll probably find a lot of like puns and uh, alliteration in uh, in in my news pieces. Whereas, as you say, in IGN and I mean, we're picking on IGN a lot. There's nothing wrong with yeah. IGN, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But they're just the biggest one, so it's kind of easier to kind of target them. But you'll often just get the kind of press release copy and pasted. It's been very interesting kind of working with press releases and stuff. I will try and like transform it into kind of a more interesting piece that's kind of easier to read or kind of doesn't use the same flowery language that they use, but like we'll do research or we'll kind of uh, try and transform it into kind of more uh, interesting kind of piece to read. Whereas, uh, you know, we get the same press releases as uh, a lot of the big kind of companies get. And often it will be the exact same press release just on their website. So it's kind of interesting seeing that, like, they don't really put a lot of effort into transforming because they don't need to. Uh, they're kind of doing the developers a favor, whereas for us, the developers doing us a favor. So <laughs> it's kind yeah. of, um, yeah, it's uh, there's definitely more personality in in kind of indie journalism, I think, than there is in uh, mainstream journalism. And I guess this personality present in indie outlets it makes more makes them more authentic. Uh, for example, I guess your personality or Bromore's personality or any of the writers' personality really makes the game creator very different from a major outlet where it's just almost apathetic way of covering video games. Uh, yeah, 100%. I mean, when you come and read a game creator article, you're, you know, you're bound to get something that's kind of probably a bit funny or a bit kind of uh, even emotional or, you know, you kind of, you really get to sort of know the writers on a kind of even more personal level in some articles. Um or even just it's 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 almost it's less like reading kind of like news and and just like these kind of boring reviews where it's like oh there's this in the game and this in the game this in the game and it's more kind of like um you know it's you kind of really get the perspective from the writer and it, it kind of feels a bit more personal and i don't know in that sense i feel like it's more enjoyable to read yeah we definitely do add a bit of like a few different things like especially even when we do our reviews we try and cover the price in the game because I feel like a lot of yeah. the bigger companies and AAA companies they don't cover the price nor that it'll ever matter to them because most like pretty close to every game they review and everything like that will be free or provided for whereas some of the, we don't get sent every single game that we review some of the games like the big AAA games we don't get sent them but we just want to review them anyway we want to play them we want to do that but we also have to consider other people like us like most gamers like they have to buy their games like you know it's expensive to go out and buy you know well i'm talking australian prices here but for example uh ps5 games in australia like if they're ps5 exclusive uh they're 125 dollars oh that's even more than here i i mean i don't know the conversion rate but here it's uh i think 80 or 90 dollars for the new ps yeah i think canada and australia's are at one-to-one so oh okay yeah, so um, pretty close. I went to Canada like two years ago. That's a tangent in itself. But when I went, it was around one to one. So yeah, so 125 for like a PS5 game here. So if you consider that, especially when you're reviewing a game and you're saying it's not very good, I think it's only fair to say, you know, you know one, I wouldn't pay that much money. And like, you know, two, there's not enough content sort of thing in the game to support how much that would cost. So, yeah, I see. Okay, um, yeah, I, I definitely why watch video game content. I always prefer to actually. I really watch IGN because they almost the way they cover games 
almost automatic. Um, they have like this grading scheme, and um, it's more like the the journalist is made to cover the game instead of uh, they want to cover the game. So like that, I think yeah. that really differentiates yeah, yeah, yeah. what you guys do at the game creator versus IGN. I mean, we're talking about IGN, but it's really the major video game outlet. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. No need to target RGN, but yeah, they are just yeah. the biggest, just the easiest, <laughs> easy to target them. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, uh, my second question, I guess, what makes video game journalism different from other types of news journalism? Uh, and actually, to make it more specific, so how does a major news outlet, uh, game outlet, transform a, a almost a passionate project, which is what you guys do, into a more corporate? more controlled almost like a more mainstream type of outlet so what what is really the difference between video game journalism in general and indie video game journalism and um, mainstream video game journalism um i'd say mostly a lot of that goes down to time as well like if you because we're using ign as an example they started in the 90s so the fact that they've been going for so long and they started basically, I think they started with magazines originally and stuff like that. So they've gone on through basically the growth of the internet. So they've always sort of been there um, reviewing games, getting all that done, you know, smashing out all of that. And we've only just started in the last year. So I think a lot of any, uh, like, yeah, any games, video game journalism sites and, you know, corporations and publications and whatnot they it's just the difference i think is time but i think a lot of them have turned into yeah like you said more of a corporate setting and yeah i think that's just what happens to all of them over time as long as they go in that direction yeah it'll just link back to whether it's a passion or profit like project yeah i think um two big differences that you'll find is kind of sponsored posts or you know, kind of uh, generating income and stuff like that on kind of mainstream stuff, you're going to get a lot more of that because it's like, I feel like the best way of kind of making money. But also um, with mainstream video game journalism, especially, you know, if they get sent a key or a code uh, by a developer and they uh, don't like the game and they criticize the game, they don't need to worry about the next code because they're going to get it anyway because they're the big one. Whereas for us, a big concern is if we don't like a game and we criticize a game, we kind of cut off an avenue uh, of developers, you know, that we are in contact with because we said their game wasn't very good. So it's, there's definitely a kind of like, uh, when you're just starting out, a balancing of being like, oh, so-and-so has sent us a code. Uh, do we want to kind of maintain that relationship in the future? Or do we want to kind of be honest and sort of say whatever we want? And I feel like there's definitely... For an indie uh, uh, journalism outlet, it's definitely kind of towing a fine line between being honest and maintaining relationships, and that's very difficult. Whereas if you're a big kind of mainstream media one, you don't need to worry about that at all. Yeah, yeah, that is a really interesting point behind the scenes when we have to. It's just really interesting when we have to sort out like if we're gonna rate a game low, how we're gonna go about it with the developer. So. There's a few instances where we haven't got responses and whatnot, but it just is what it is, really. So. Yeah, I mean, um, like, on my perspective, I can't really blame you guys because you guys are trying to make it. Um, and 
But I, I guess this also makes uh, your journalism more interesting in a way because the 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 again IGN, but by IGN we really mean the big video game outlets. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I yeah, hope yeah. like IGN don't try to take this episode down or anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess they are really just more focused on saying whatever they like but even so they say whatever they like but they are saying what they like but they are saying it away because they are paid to say it so the journalist is paid to say it so i guess that makes your journalism more interesting because you have you have to almost shape it in a way with your personality to make sure that it's interesting and not just paid to say whatever you're paid to say right yeah, yeah I, think it, I think it goes twice because sometimes I reckon they're paid to say things and also at the same time, I think there's situations where they also can say whatever they want because they know there'll be no consequences. Yeah. So I think there is situations where they're going to cover every game under the sun um, because they can and because their staff allows it, but not every single person's going to be going to like that game. They're probably like some guy's going to get shafted I think of that like shaft of the game and they're not really interested in that actually happened this year with GameSpot um, with Cyberpunk. So there was a girl who reviewed that and she got a lot of hate on the whole article and it turned a bit sour, but it's basically like she's more into Animal Crossing um, and more like chilled, relaxing games. And she got put on the project of Cyberpunk 2077 and basically had to tell the world, you know, she had to tell the world that the game was basically bad before it came out and she got a lot of hate for that. Yeah, there was a lot of hype around that game. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Then I guess we can move on to the corporate dynamics in video games, uh, which is a very fun topic and a very influential one, especially in the modern uh, video game models that they are pushing out. So first, just a general question. Uh, where do you see this corporate dynamic in video games and uh, how does this influence the game um, they produce, for uh, companies produce? For example, in 2018, I think, was with uh, EA's uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2, which they put loot boxes in and 60 American dollar video game, which a lot of people actually boycotted that game because they had loot boxes. So, uh, so how does corporate interest influence video games they produce and... Uh, how uh, all this influence the way their games are covered? I feel like um, obviously one thing that maybe a lot of people forget is that video game developers are like businesses and they're trying to make as much money as they can. You do get a lot of stuff like EA who are kind of notorious for uh, making as much money from a video game as possible, kind of putting loot boxes in stuff. You know, there was the scandal, I think it was... Um, Last year, where in uh, the UFA game, they put like uh, adverts, uh, like mid game or whatever, that you had to watch when you were fighting or whatever. You know, it's, it is kind of, they're a business, they're trying to make money, it's understandable, but it can interfere with a video game with, with players' enjoyment. And as a result, is obviously criticized quite harshly. And I think a lot of that stuff is getting phased out. You know, um, loot boxes are kind of becoming more transparent. Uh, companies have to put kind of um, your chances of winning various items because it's essentially gambling. Uh, and a lot of kind of countries are cracking down on that kind of that kind of side of it. I think a trend that we are seeing more and more often, kind of going back to cyberpunk, is releasing games that are not finished and 
charging full price and then kind of fixing it afterwards. And I think it's something we're seeing more of because gaming is becoming kind of more mainstream. It's kind of like all over the internet. And I feel like there are a lot of kind of people that are demanding video games. I know a lot of people blamed Cyberpunk's kind of being rushed out on the fans kind of demanding it and kind of sending death threats and whatnot. But you've also got kind of um, investors and stuff who want to see a return on their money. And Cyberpunk was taking like eight years or whatever. And they were like, well, we kind of want yeah. <laughs> we kind of want to see some money from that game. So I think, you know, it's difficult to say because on the one hand, yeah, it sucks for, for video games. It sucks for players that these games are being rushed out. But on the other, these are businesses. They're trying to make as much money as possible. So it's difficult to kind of judge in that respect. But I do think, uh, like in any media, in film, in um, uh, I'm sure in, in like comics, in video games, when corporate interferes with creativity, it can cause a kind of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? You know, like a, a kind of uh, a, a distance between the two. And uh, that's uh, not that enjoyable for players, yeah, I'd argue. I see. I hope I answered your question. I don't know. I kind of rambled. No, yeah, it makes it <laughs> clear. Yeah. Mr. Heiner? Um, yeah, I think Tom pretty much summed it up. He went on a bit of a tangent there. So yeah, I think that's everything. But I think that's, to basically tie it in, that's basically the difference between AAA games and indie games. Like, you always have to, there's always, when you have a big AAA game, there's always that publisher behind and just relating it back to Cyberpunk as well. You've got uh, like a team of, I think 500, I think CD Projekt Red had for uh, the whole company sort of thing. And so you've got like a marketing team. And I think a lot of people complained, like why were they, you know, still pushing the game and advertising and doing the Night City wires and all that each week if they knew the game wasn't ready or it wasn't good, it's because they've got the marketing team, you know, pushing the marketing side of things. They've got them pushing that weekly Night City Wire that's already organized each week and they're focusing on all of that. The devs are over in another section. They're going like, oh no, this game is going to be horrible. We haven't got it finished yet. But the publishers and all the stockholders and all the people that you know, are going to make a fortune off this getting released and like it coming out, they're all going, you know, we need this now. We need the money. It's been in development for so long. Like I still remember seeing the first trailer from 2012, I think, or early 2013. Was it that long ago? Yeah, I think it was 2013 around January or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They released a teaser for it saying it's coming soon. So... At that point, yeah, I can understand the point, the position of the publishers and the stockholders going like, come on, let's just get this done. Um, and I don't think, obviously, COVID plays a factor. It's not, wouldn't have been a big deal. But at the same time, that's the difference between, you know, your big AAA studios and indie games, whereas indie games, it's going to be, it's going to be more a passion project. They're going to want to release the game. They're going to, it's everything. They want, and they want it to be good. Um, they they will only really make money if you know it's successful or it you know blows up like another Undertale or something like that. It's never they don't have a publisher involved. They don't have someone pushing them over the edge to get it ready. Um, 
and that is it sort of relates back to the same in when with us as well being more of an indie like company as well you know there's no one pushing us to release things we don't have sponsored posts or ads on our website or anything like that so we just want to try and give the best you know like the best you can yeah. see on the website really like we don't we just and it's the same with them they just want the best game yeah. possible so i think if you put it this way this really differentiates um witcher 3 which is the previous game by oh not the previous the the previous before the witcher story tale series like that really different witcher 3 and cyberpunk 2077 because if you look at Witcher 3 in a way, it's almost like an indie game. They made it because they enjoyed making it and they stopped making the series because they said they had enough of um with this franchise for the time being. So I guess that really differentiates Witcher 3, which is a game that a lot of people, I mean, a lot, a lot of people loved and Cyberpunk 2077, which they had to recall, if I'm not mistaken, from uh, PlayStation and Xbox. Yeah, so uh, just... Yeah. Re- just from PlayStation, I think. I think it stayed on Xbox. Yeah, it's it's still on Xbox. Yeah. It's uh, only on PlayStation Four that you can't buy it. Yeah. Um, but I think oh, it's, it's... On, you can't get it on PS Five. Okay, fair. Yeah, I think just... it's um worth mentioning that when The Witcher came out, that was super buggy as well, and they had to patch that. But I think the the big difference between The Witcher Three when that launched and Cyberpunk is The Witcher Three was pretty much done. Like the systems were there. Uh, the gameplay was solid, the story was solid, whereas with Cyberpunk, that was like a half-finished game. And I, I, I think you're right in that The Witcher 3 was definitely a kind of a passion project. I mean, CD Projekt Red kind of um, developed itself almost in the same way as, uh, as Pixar did originally, which was kind of, um, you know, they're sick of kind of corporate intervention and yes. sick of... Yeah. Uh, publishers telling them what to do and so they went down the self-publishing route they went down the we want to make whatever game we want to make and I think there is parts of cyberpunk that's evident of that because it's this crazy kind of huge world and uh, there's a lot of really great ideas there so I think there's still some of CD Projekt Red in it but I think there's definitely player expectation investor expectation and maybe just too much hype it's kind of the No Man's Sky problem of maybe don't call it the next generation of open world gaming uh if it's not going to involve features that were there kind of in games seven years ago yeah okay i see i think that you also see this with um bethesda also see this with uh yes fileware with uh like mass yeah. effects like the andromeda was a disaster but like yeah so i guess it's also so it's a uh, it's a sort of like the major game publisher or the not game publisher or the game developers they are influenced by the players expectation especially also sometimes by the hype they create on their own and also by the corporate interest behind them yeah definitely i mean in uh, bioware's case they're kind of run by ea so the reason why andromeda was such a flop if i remember correctly is because ea wanted them desperately to make it in their frostbite engine the Frostbite engine was just not ready for a game like Mass Effect Andromeda. They spent like two years of development trying to make it work. It wouldn't. They then had to like restart development and basically do the whole thing again. Uh, so that was like a massive kind of uh, undertaking for them to do in such a short space of time. And uh, even recently, with the success of Star Wars uh, Jedi Fallen Order, as a single-player game, you know, EA thought it was a massive risk releasing a single-player-only game uh, it was super successful, and as a result, uh, 
uh, EA allowed Bioware to make uh, the new Dragon Age game and the new Mass Effect game uh, single-player experiences and not uh, games as a live service, which they were originally going to be. So it is this kind of massive corporate intervention. And then I think there is the... I think we are slowly getting to a point where corporate entities like EA and big publishers and that are kind of reeling back a bit and being like, okay, well, actually, you know, the players have spoken. They like single-player games, so we're going to let Bioware do their own thing. I think we are getting more of that, but it is it is taking time. It is kind of... The control is slowly getting back to the developers, but I think it's taking time to kind of get to that stage. Okay, I see. And um, let's also talk a bit more about, like, the multiplayer game and uh, single-player game dynamics between uh, in corporate settings. Because uh, it's really interesting. Before, they were... I think especially Ubisoft, they are pushing a model of uh, almost live su- subscription, but not really live su- subscription. It's more like a a an ongoing process. For example, with uh, Rainbow Six Siege or uh, even with uh, Ghost Rec- Recon Games, which was I I believe it was supposed to be uh, in in the history of Ghost Recon Game was supposed to be single player only, and then they developed it more into like a like a ongoing live experience where there's like expansion packs every every couple like cycles i guess um so so what are some why are corporate moving more towards uh this direction and why are some others moving into like a more single player direction yeah i've been playing a lot of those sorts of games recently i've been playing a lot of warzone and like fortnite and a lot of those and even like Genshin Impact is actually a similar one as well. They're going towards that games as a live service sort of deal. And I think the biggest reason why they're going that direction and why they can and why they are so successful is because it starts off like Rainbow Six Siege and all that are a little different because you have to pay for the initial game itself and then you get those expansions and you keep going. Whereas Genshin Impact, I think it hit huge success and so did Fortnite and Warzone because they're free. It's just simple. Anyone can jump on and they can play for free. And I think that opens the market up to so many people that otherwise couldn't afford a game or a game of like... like Previous to that, like I'm not sure if like everyone could afford a Call of Duty game because uh, they're always top price and stuff like that. And if you're not fully invested in the game or not sure on the idea, you're like, oh, okay, well I'll never, I'll never go buy a Call of Duty game. I could like it, but I'm never going to go try it. But now that Warzone's free, it opens the door to all these people that never quite knew if they were going to like it or not. And now they've probably liked it. They've probably gone and bought, you know, uh, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, their newest one, uh, which I. Th- think is one of the top sold games of the year or something like that i think it is number one in the last year and i think a lot of people went out and, you know played warzone because it was free and then go okay yeah i'll, I'll play the next cod that comes out because you know now i'm interested in it and i think genshin impact was a similar success and the reason why they still make a lot of money is because of that games of live service you you pay mostly i think those ones in particular those three you pay generally for cosmetic effects. Genshin Impact's a little bit different, and that one's actually a bit more of an anomaly, which has actually been crazy successful. You know, getting doing the gacha thing on different 
actual characters itself is I think personally a bit of a risky business decision, but it has it's it's worked out. Like I know Call of Duty tried it in the past and it failed. And I know a few other games have tried to do it, like even um Star Wars Battlefront Two, how we were saying it tried to do all the behind the loot boxes and it failed dramatically. So I think Genshin Impact has done, you know, a really good job of making it accessible to play and also introducing a like monetary aspect where they can make realistically just a a fortune. (laughs) They've made a lot of money. (laughs) Uh, I think to uh, add to that as well, like um, in terms of kind of transitioning single player titles to these kind of uh, as a live service type games, uh, kind of touching on what you were saying, Jaden, in that games are super expensive these days. And I think, you know, if somebody's going to pay like uh, whatever, $125 or whatever you're saying, <laughs> yeah. um, for a game, you know, they want to be able to feel like, oh, well, this is a game that I can play for a really, really long time. And so doing games as a live service where like new quests are added every day or, you know, like new uh, like achievements to unlock are added or whatever. Uh, this these kind of like constantly updated games that kind of generates this almost unlimited amount of content for you to do uh, to basically keep you occupied until you know the next big release. And I think in that sense, it's it's actually quite a good thing because it's you know kind of uh, making these games worth the obscene amount of money that you're paying. But on the other hand, it does kind of create these less focused um, these less focused games, these less focused titles because they know, oh, well, we don't have to focus too much on kind of creating an interesting story or whatever because we can just make it as a live service game and just release content every so often. So I think, um, as Jaden was saying, microtransactions are a big part of uh, games as a live service. For example, uh, with the Assassin's Creed games, you can pay for like XP boosters. So if you keep generating more and more missions for people to do, people have to grind and grind and grind, and eventually they're going to go, oh, well, I'll just pay for an XP booster and that'll make the grind a lot easier. And so there is like a lot of money in microtransactions, which kind of makes this uh, games live service kind of more profitable. So it's kind of, there's arguments for it and I think for uh, against it even, but um, it's certainly an interesting development, in, in, especially in terms of single-player games. I see. And talking about microtransaction especially, then let's move on to the topic of uh, mobile gaming, which is getting pretty big recently, especially with uh, the whole uh, Diablo thing and also, I think, also uh, Nintendo, uh, which also starts to develop a lot more mobile games. So, for example, we see uh, Fire Emblem Heroes, I think, that came to the West in 2018, and Animal Crossing on the iOS and also Android, I believe. So... So what is the corporate interest behind the rise of mobile gaming? Uh, money. <laughs> yeah. there's, lo- there's lots and lots and lots of money to be had in mobile gaming. Uh, it's literally stuff- the same. The, the yeah. games of service stuff is basically just come from mobile gaming. It's pretty much that simple, yeah. Yeah, it just makes loads of money. You know, games like Pocket Camp and which is the animal crossing one and fire emblem heroes you know people are paying for that like gacha stuff or to speed up uh the like production of their camp or whatever it's just a massive way to make a really really easy to make game they probably make it for not very much money and then generate a lot of money uh, as a result from people paying for microtransactions so i think 
the appeal there is uh, is one hundred percent money. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I think I think the mobile gaming sort of arena. I think that is probably one of the only places where you can not that it, like when you make a Steam game or a game on PC, AAA games generally are gonna be well, should be at least with the amount of money in them, should be ahead of indie games when you look at it on paper. Whereas I think mobile gaming is a platform where you can be an indie dev and you can actually make a game that can earn you a lot of money and compare with those bigger AAA games you know, on mobile. And that's generally what mobile gaming, I feel, was always prior to the last few years um mostly indie games like it was never really big triple a studios going on there and i think you know that's that diablo debacle what you're saying is you know diablo's seen how much money mobile games are making and they're like well we've already made the name diablo you know everyone knows what diablo is we just chuck it on the mobile store for free with some microtransactions everyone is gonna you know, everyone that's played Diablo is going to jump on there and be like, oh, it's free, it's paying my phone, I can play anywhere and keep going. And they're going to attract a whole new audience that plays mobile games. They're going to attract the audience that they had on console or come there and they're trying to make like a bigger audience. I think a lot of AAA developers are starting to try and do that, like what Tom was saying with like Animal Crossing and how you said it as well, Animal Crossing Pocket Camp and feel there's other ones where you have to wait time to do things like there's like an energy incorporated and you run out of your energy you're done for the day where some people generally you know aren't done for the day and they you know they want to keep going so they're going to pay real money to keep playing and i think if a lot of AAA games that already have established big you know titles they can easily come to mobile gaming and bring you know an audience with them okay i see and um Regarding like the indie games on uh mobile platform, do you do you see this as a um democratization of gaming or do you see this more like as a deterioration in the quality of games? Because if I go on the iOS stores, um I want to play a game, I almost always I don't see anything interesting for me personally to play. So my question would be would this be a democratization of gaming or would this more be like just a deterioration and just mediocre games being pushed on the mobile platform which is also a stigma that mobile platform has i think uh there's definitely a lot of uh bad games being pushed onto mobile i think that's definitely a a big part of it i think you know one of the reasons was you know back in the day uh when kind of mobile was first starting out and you were getting kind of games like candy crush and and um uh, and stuff like that you know it was it was new and it was fresh and it was kind of this you know oh my god like you can play these like super simple but like super addictive games on your phone and over the years it's just become kind of kind of filled with just uh clones and basically games that just recycle the same ideas you know you've got tomb blast and toy world and juice jam and uh, candy crush and and they all do the exact same thing they're all the same game and i feel like it has gone to this point where, as Jaden was saying, you can be an indie developer and you can release really interesting games onto uh, the mobile platform. And I think a lot of indie games have seen success there, but you do have a a, a platform. Everyone has a phone. And so developers all over the world are like, I want to make a game for mobile because I'm I've, it's the biggest audience. And so I think there's definitely a lot of like, 
well, I can make whatever cheap game and just put it out there. So even though there might be interesting games out there that may even see a lot of success, I think the biggest problem with the mobile store and the kind of mobile gaming world is just a lot of really, really terrible games being pumped out all the time. And I think this is a problem that is also affecting the Switch because the Switch has basically just become a place to port bad mobile games to. Uh, yes. Yeah, but I feel like that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think um I think there was there used to be a time, I think would have been probably almost ten years ago when I first had, you know, like an iPod touch, if anyone yeah. remembers what they are. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I remember I had like an iPhone touch and like this is when I'd go like Wi Fi wasn't that big in Australia. So it's like, you know, it's not that bad. Uh, so it would have been like 10, 15 years ago, probably. And I was quite young. Wi-Fi wasn't like a crazy thing here, but we like sort of just got Wi-Fi. And I would be downloading games. So if I went on a road trip or something with my family, I could play games on my phone. And back then, free like free games were like few and far between. Like there was basically like no free games. You always had to pay, I think it was like a dollar sixty-nine or something for games like on the for the cheapest you could buy on the app store. And I remember I could play some genuinely good games. And a lot of those games have been phased out now on the app store or just didn't even, they've just been discontinued because like they're just completely dead now. Uh, Cause a lot of those games have just been recreated with ads and free on the new store. So like a lot of them just use ads to push game. Really, like the the top. I agree with you, Henry, in saying the the top games are just bad. <laughs> like yeah, I looked yeah. through the I looked through the top ten. Like I because I I don't mind mobile gaming. Like I don't think I'll I play a lot of the more shooter ones. Like I'll never play like PUBG or anything on my phone. I like more just uh, easy going game that I can just relax on my phone with before bed. And I do occasionally check, you know, the app store and. Yeah, I looked through probably about the top 30 to 40 games and I can never see a single thing that I'm interested in. I just sort of sit there scrolling aimlessly, just looking through crap. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think the, the the paying of video games, as you mentioned, Jaden, that uh, in the previous decade, I think uh, it, like even in my childhood it was like that. I think back then uh, my father had like the first iPad, which we still have in his office. Um, like there was a lot of good games on there. I'm not going to lie. Like the, I, I probably also started off gaming like on the mobile platform. But yeah, I, I think as you said, with when gaming and the Wi-Fi and internet became more and more popular and widespread, they just became flooded. And also, sort of like the corporate also realized there's another way to monetize their game to make it more profitable. And speaking of appropriating games or reventing games and putting them on other platforms, I sort of want to touch a bit more on like the remaster side of things. Uh, I want to bring the example of uh, Dark Souls, actually, Dark Souls Remastered, uh, because a lot of Dark Souls fans, including myself, um, was not very happy with that remaster. So uh, what are the corporate interests behind remaster and what is what can be considered as a real remaster versus like a like Dark Souls remasters. Yeah, remasters is a is a touchy subject. <laughs> I've I've written uh, quite a few articles on uh, 
on my feelings about remasters. I feel like um the well the again I think with all corporate things the the great thing about a remaster is it's very cheap to do and will generate a lot of money. I mean if even if you take a look at um for example the the recently announced Skyward Sword uh, remaster for the Nintendo Switch which is a game that was made in 2011 uh, it is being sold separately, not in a bundle, and they're charging uh, £49.99. Um, I'm not sure what the equivalent is uh, for this, you know, 10-year-old remaster. I think remasters can generate a lot of money. Uh, they're very easy to make. You don't have to, you know, really do that much to it other than kind of port over to the new system and and maybe kind of tweak the controls a bit. I feel like a lot of people can be disappointed in a remaster because in a lot of cases, for example, I remember when um, Far Cry 3 was remastered and brought over to kind of, uh, at the time, next-gen platforms of PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. A lot of people kind of came to the realization that maybe Far Cry 3, as great of a game as it is, it's kind of marred by the kind of, um, you know, the limitations of the time when it was made because it was made on the Xbox 360 and it was made in a time where you know, people hadn't come up with all the great kind of uh, game innovations that we have now. So when people were playing the Far Cry 3 remaster, they were like, oh, it's not as good as I remember it being. And I feel like this can be an issue with remasters because there is this kind of uh, rose-tinted nostalgia and there is this kind of, you know, you played it as a kid and then it gets brought back um, and maybe it's not as good as you're hoping. I think a good remaster is, for example, a good remaster is taking a game that maybe not a lot of people have experienced or even if lots of people have experienced it, you know, they experienced it a long time ago, bringing it and updating it in a way that kind of adheres to like modern game design and stuff like that. I feel like you can't just take an old game, bring it over and sell it again because it will have that old school game design. For example, I'm a big uh, Xenoblade Chronicles fan. But when they released uh, the remaster or the remake of uh, the first Xenoblade Chronicles, I absolutely hated it because it is uh, so kind of um, riddled with with game design problems because it was made, you know, in the Wii era. And I feel like, um, you know, you need to you need to modernize it and you need to bring it to a point where it can compete with the games of this generation, uh, which I think is a lot more hard work. It's doable, but it's 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 definitely a lot more hard work. For example, we were talking um, on our po- on our podcast, uh, the Creator Corner. We were talking about um, the new Pokemon uh, remakes, the 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 Diamond and Pearl remakes, and uh, we were kind of saying how, you know, they they made no effort to, for example, even update it to have the same visual style as the current games. It doesn't necessarily need to be open world or at least have open areas like the the new games, but it it it's you know not even the same style. So it's kind of just the same game, but uh, you know, with a kind of slightly updated, kind of chibi visual style. I feel like if you put in the effort to kind of modernize it, to bring it to modern day standards, and to kind of get rid of the issues that were plaguing it, then yeah, uh, remakes can or remakes and remasters can absolutely work. A good example of that is the Shadow of Colossus uh, remake, which a lot of people really really like, and even the Demon Souls remake, which was made yeah. by the same people, Blue Point, I believe they're called where they took the old game they went what was wrong with that game what made it bad and then they updated it to kind of make it more fun and more enjoyable for audiences now so yeah i feel like for me a remake or a remaster needs to 
evolve with the times and kind of modernize it uh, in order to be good. And I feel like a lot of the time, Nintendo especially, they don't do that. And as a result, they overcharge for what is essentially the same game that you played 10 years ago. Like the Mario All-Stars package. Exactly. Which, side note, uh, was ridiculous that they pulled uh, after March 31st and uh, was a very scummy business tactic by Nintendo. But anyway, that's besides the point. <laughs> I think Nintendo has like the nostalgia capital to like pull those um, remasters. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem with Nintendo at the moment is they have the nostalgia and everyone's going to buy it and they know that. 100%. Yeah, if you bring back like the the what we were just saying about the 3D Mario All-Stars package of three games, you know, they were just straight ports. Uh they didn't touch them at all. They literally just bundled three games together, sold it as one, and yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's like their games from like so. A Super Mario sixty four is. I'm definitely not going to bag that game. That was easily one of my favorite games, and it's the game I grew up on as a child. But to resell it with two other Mario games and then take it off the shelf, like put a deadline on it, I think it's a bit. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> it's scummy. Just because I, you know, they're going to tell everyone buy it before this date, or you're never going to buy it again. So it's kind of like. Well, everyone went out and bought it, didn't they? I mean, if Absolutely. they put an effort into that, like into remake, I guess that could be justifiable to play on people's nostalgia. But if they just pour the game, yeah. Uh, Mr. Wilson, you were saying? Yeah, no, I was just going to say. Um, it's also you know the 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 difference between you know being in a in a in a store or even you know going on Amazon or whatever, and picking between. A new newly released game like the new Spider-Man game, or you know, for example, the the new Far Cry game that's coming out, or whatever, and then that's the same price as this package of remastered like Nintendo games. Deciding between a new game and a game that you've already played many many times before as a kid, for me, it doesn't make sense that they're the same price. For me, the remaster should be significantly cheaper than a brand new game. That is, you know, has a new story that you've literally never played before. It doesn't make sense that the cost is the same. For example, when they re-released the Devil May Cry games on the Nintendo Switch, they released them in the UK for £15.99, which for some might seem unreasonably unreasonably high because they're quite old games. But at least that's, you know, significantly cheaper than uh, the cost of Breath of the Wild. But what they're essentially saying here is that Skyward Sword, a game made 10 years ago, is worth the same amount of money as Breath of the Wild at full price, which is unbelievable. Or that the Mario collection, All-Star collection, is worth the same as Mario Odyssey. It, it, it's not in, in, any, in any shape or form. So for me, that, that's quite annoying. And it, it also, it's just a shame because it's, you know, it's lazy. It, you know, you're kind of cheating people out of money you're just reselling them games that they've played i mean i'm sure Jaden, you've probably played mario 64 like a million times i know yeah. i've played it a million yeah. times i've played it you know on the ds and I, I, I i'm sure it's on like every nintendo platform at this point you know i've played it like so many times i don't need to play it again just because it's on the switch Problem it doesn't make is. sense the problem yeah. is I did play it again. 
well there you go <laughs> but so yeah i mean <laughs> yeah well this is it it does work because you know uh, i remember one night i was super super bored and i wanted a game to play and i saw that skyrim was on the switch and i love skyrim or at least i loved skyrim when i played it on the 360 and so i bought it at full price which was 60 pounds right which is far too much for skyrim which is like five pounds on the xbox 360 and i immediately regretted my purchase because i was like this is just skyrim but it's on the switch and i just paid it a ridiculous amount of money for it i think that's the issue i there's a lot more for me buyer's remorse with these kind of remaster games that are sold at ridiculously high prices because it's just the same game and that quickly dawns on you when you start playing it yeah okay i see that definitely makes sense that's sort of like my feeling when seeing like dark souls remaster and like seeing demon souls remaster which is just completely different things i mean yeah i think that covers it pretty well and speaking of like porting games Let's talk about yearly releases, especially, for example, Call of Duty. Some people just say they are not just Call of Duty, but like those type of games are just like the same game, but you just put a different type of um, skin on it and then they just resell it for another price. So do you think, do, do you, for example, uh, Mr. Wilson, do you also feel buyer's remorse when you buy those types of games? Because you know that next year they're just going to have another game, which is pretty much the same game. But if you want to keep playing, you have to buy that game instead. Um, me and my brother, we played FIFA 13, uh, up until, uh, last year when we bought FIFA 18 for 50p. For us, FIFA is the same game every single year. The gameplay is slightly tweaked. The visuals are slightly tweaked. And of course it updates the team roster, but it's essentially the same game every year. And in that instance, I think it is ridiculous to charge the same price for essentially the same game. I mean, for example, during um during 2020 when there was covid and you know developers were kind of rushing to kind of get these yearly releases out, uh Pez instead of releasing a new game released a 20 pound or 30 pound kind of upgrade pack for Pez 2020 uh which essentially just updated the team rosters and changed the the gameplay a little bit. That was kind of damning in basically going oh so it is really the same game every year you're just charging full price for it in terms of call of duty i think that's a different beast because and i think the same can be applied for assassin's creed and far cry and all those which are released maybe not yearly but um i think every two years or so with call of duty games you are getting a different game every time there's a new story a new setting the graphics are usually like massively upgraded and I feel like the, these are games that uh, a misconception is that these games are developed in a year and then released. And I think maybe in the case of FIFA, that, that actually might be the case. I think maybe they are developed in a year. Yeah, but with probably. Call of Duty, these are games that are developed over many years just by different teams and they kind of alternate and th- they release them yearly. Call of Duty, I think, whatever you may think of Call of Duty, they definitely try every year to do something a little bit different. Uh, take, for example, the uh, Call of Duty World War II, which um, kind of massively changed up the formula in terms of the like fundamental gameplay and obviously brought the game to a familiar setting because we'd had World War II games um, a while back, but was kind of brand new for the, for the franchise because we hadn't had one in a while. I think, and it's the same with Assassin's Creed, you know, the jump from, I think it's uh, Black Flag to Origins. You know, that was a whole new combat system 
a whole new kind of uh, way of playing Assassin's Creed. And with each game, they they are kind of adding kind of new things and and new tweaks to the way that they tell the story and the gameplay. So I think in the case of something like FIFA, yeah, I would have massive buyer's remorse if I bought FIFA 2022 because it's going to be as good as FIFA 13. In fact, it's probably going to be worse because FIFA 13 is the best FIFA. But in terms of something like Call of Duty or um, Assassin's Creed or whatever, I don't think there is because I think they are different games. I think they warrant being bought every year. Um, yeah, that's my that's my kind of piece on that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was pretty much going to say that Pez thing and then you pretty much just took it straight out of my mouth. <laughs> well, think. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, each year there's, you know, those out every single year and I think basically what Tom said, like I think FIFA has done pretty much in a year whereas Call of Duty, yeah, there's different teams that are headed every year and that's they, they do work on them for a few years. Like I think the one rumor this year is supposed to be going back to that World War Two sort of setting. Um, and that's headed by Sledgehammer Games. Um, and the latest one, Call of Duty Cold War, was by, I think, Raven Software or Treyarch. And then the one before, that's Raven Software. And then they just they alternate between, I think there's three or four different developers, like there's Treyarch, Raven, Sledgehammer, and Infinity Ward. They all just rotate between each other and all make games. So they're actually working on it for a few years beforehand. Um, and to make matters worse, they even use um, different engines. So that's uh, there's like a lot of talk about the Warzone engine being good and then some people hate it and then some people like the Call of Duty Cold War engine but then other people hate it. So it's, you know, I think each one is a different entity in itself and it can get confusing. I think it just depends what you like and what you're into. So... Yeah, but touching on the, the FIFA thing, I think FIFA is a bit ridiculous. I think it's the same game every year. <laughs> yeah. I think the sports games sort of have the same uh, nostalgia capital. I mean, not nostalgia capital, but like the culture capital to do the same thing every year because they will always be sports fans to buy those games. Yeah, I definitely fell, yeah. um, fell into the FIFA um, train there for a bit. I think I bought every FIFA from, what do you mean, like 2008? Basically, to 2020, I think, to wow. FIFA 2020. Yeah, so I definitely. Well, it was not just like I. I didn't even play a lot of them for a long period of time. It was just like, oh, FIFA's out, I'll buy it. You know, I've already got my pre-order ready. I'll just go down, and go down, and get it. Just FIFA. So. I think that's another. That's another big thing as well. Is there's kind of maybe not that much excitement around them. Uh, you kind of can't really get excited for the next FIFA because you're just like, oh yeah, it's FIFA. Do you know what I, I mean? Get, I get a little excited for the updated squads, but then you know yeah. that gets that gets done. Um, once you play like for a week, you're like, oh cool. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah, because FIFA, it's always been FIFA since FIFA began, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, always. yeah, yeah, yeah. Always be the same thing. Yeah. And uh, speaking of yearly releases, then also releases, but more on a different light. Can we talk a bit more like uh, exclusive, especially before it was exclusive on console. There was always exclusive on the PS4, on the on the Xbox, on Nintendo. They're also exclusive, but now exclusives also starting to appear on PC, especially with Epic Games. So, um, what are the dynamics of exclusive behind video games, and why would 
a, a publisher or a developer put、uh, their game exclusively on one platform, but not on other platforms. That's generally to do with how much the、uh, platform is offering them <laughs> to put their game exclusively. I think、um, you know you get the the recent deal with、uh, Bethesda and、uh, Microsoft, where、uh, Microsoft bought Bethesda for an incredible was, amount of money. I think it was seven point、uh, five or something like that. Seven point five billion, wasn't it? Yeah, around about. Yeah, that, yeah. it was、uh, a ridiculous amount of money, and、uh, exclusives are everything now because. You know, you have kind of、uh, these console wars, and I think you know, in the last generation and the generation before that, you had, you know, there was hardware、uh, comparisons where whichever console was had the better hardware, you know, that was the one to get. But now we're kind of in a point where, at least in the console generation, they're pretty much the same, and it's now not a question of oh, well, the Xbox is faster or. The Xbox can run better games or whatever. It's now just oh well, PlayStation has Horizon Zero Dawn and Xbox has、uh, Halo, and you know it, it is this kind of like you buy a platform not because it's the better console, but because it has the game that you like. And with PC, it's kind of becoming the same thing where you know Steam is so kind of everywhere. Like everyone who has PC who plays games has Steam. You kind of can't not have Steam. So to beat Steam, the only thing you can do is go. Well, we have a game that they don't. So come to our platform and play it. And I think for Epic, who have、um, infinite money, it would seem because they just spend yes,、uh, yeah. money on just whatever they want. You know, for them, it's easy to go. Oh well, we'll buy this company for fifteen million, or we'll we'll buy the rights to have this game on our platform for a year for like two million or whatever. And the company, of course, are going to go. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. We want that because you're going to give us a whole load of money. And I think that's where it is. I think that's you know where it stands. That if you want people to come to your platform, you have to have exclusive games. You have to be able to go. We have something that they don't because you can't say we have the faster console because they're all the same now. But you can say we have Horizon Zero Dawn and you don't, or we have Halo Infinite and you don't. And I think that's where it is at this point. I think that's how you win a console war. And I think you know, in the last generation, PlayStation sold way better than Xbox. And that's no slight against Xbox, but you know, PlayStation had more exclusives. It had more games where they could say, "We have this and you don't." And Xbox was kind of trailing behind. And I think they're trying to catch up now. You know, buying Bethesda is a huge move for them to go. Well, we now have. The Elder Scrolls is an exclusive, or we now have Starfield as an exclusive, or whatever. We have Doom as an exclusive. I, that's going to be a huge step for them. That's why they spent seven point five billion because they can now go well, come to our platform because we have this game. I think that's the importance of exclusives. Okay, coming to Xbox buying Bethesda,、um, I don't remember correctly, so correct me if I'm wrong. Did they say that they are going to make a Bethesda game exclusive on Xbox, or did they say that they will? Just delay or some like release to other platforms. I don't think they've said any any exclusive like exclusivity on all of that yet. I think it's just sort of TBA.、Um, a few of the Bethesda games already had contracts with PlayStation, so they're going to uphold those. But I think, fortunately, I think Microsoft, because they sort of also are a big、um, computer brand, 
you're always going to find I don't there's never going to be a true Xbox exclusive anymore like how you get PlayStation exclusives only on the console even then a lot of PlayStation games are now coming to Steam and onto PC but Microsoft's always going to have their Xbox games on PC which prior to this um acquisition I no offense to Xbox or anything like that but it just sort of seemed like why would you continue to get an Xbox if you had a PC already? Because you you could realistically play both on that. Uh, and it's just like you're missing out on the PlayStation. So I think this is a good acquisition for them. And I think it'll definitely help them. Because otherwise, I, I think it's just going to be a repeat of last generation. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of follow up on that, they, yeah, they haven't uh, confirmed that Bethesda games will be exclusive. However they almost certainly will be either exclusive uh, for a period on Xbox or, for example, smaller Bethesda games uh, like the Rage series or even uh, something like Doom or whatever may become exclusive while bigger titles may be available elsewhere, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it'll be yeah. the um, timed, okay. timed exclusive sort of deal. Yeah, okay, I see. And uh, I guess this exclusive um, sort of also plays into the console PC world because console people are always saying, well, you don't have this game on PC and PC games are, games are always saying, well, you don't have all our indie games on console. So yeah, I guess it's sort of the same dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And I also want to talk a bit more about uh, the game subscription model that consoles are pushing. For example, Xbox Live or um, I, I forgot what PlayStation called it, but uh, are they also a way for the company to win the console war? Or, because I, I see a lot of people being attracted to the new e- Xbox because they say Xbox Live is just so much better than the PlayStation model. So, Yeah. Uh, Xbox uh, Game Pass um, is pretty huge for Xbox. And I think I don't think there is much of a console war in the eyes of actually Sony and Microsoft anymore. I think the console wars and all that are kind of over and they're more in the eyes of fans and, you know, people arguing what console's better. But I think Game Pass is a huge step forward for Xbox and just gaming in general. I think PlayStation needs to do something. They're they're working on the um, PlayStation, like, uh, Play at Home initiative, I think it's called. And, um, you know, a lot of those games are coming out for free, with their PS Plus subscription. I think that is a good um, way to combat the Games Pass, but I think Games Pass is just... It's an amazing thing, but it's also available on PC as well. So you can actually get a lot of their games so for free. Well, paid as a subscription, but essentially free because I think you can pay three months for a dollar or something like that, so it's pretty close to nothing. And you can get a lot of the if they do go down the road of what we were touching on just before and making Bethesda games, you know, exclusive, you could basically get all these brand new Bethesda games coming out day one for essentially a dollar as opposed to, you know, uh, 50 or 60 quid or $125 Australian. (laughs) I think um, as well, a lot of people tend to forget that PlayStation actually have PlayStation Now, which is their equivalent of Game Pass, which is... You know, where they have, you pay a monthly subscription fee and you get access to uh, various different games or whatever. But I think uh, the key difference, as 
Jaden was kind of mentioning is that with Xbox Game Pass, you get these brand new games that are like, um, you know, just coming out that you can access for a dollar or a pound or whatever. But with PlayStation now, they have newish games on there, but they're slowly added like well after they've come out. There's nothing that is like exclusive to PlayStation now. There's nothing that it's brand new and it's coming for PlayStation now. It's like, for example, they've only just added Marvel's Avengers. Uh, they added Days Gone, I think, a few months ago. You know, it's it's a subscription service basically for people who want to catch up on on PlayStation games that they've missed out on as opposed to playing the like next PlayStation game. I think if PlayStation want to kind of um want to kind of capture that market they need to take the tv model you know the netflix the amazon the hulu model and maybe even do playstation now exclusives like small indie games that you can only play on there or release like not horizon zero dawn but it's the only one i can think of release a fairly big-ish game for the playstation now platform like make it something that people have to go to if they want to access these games but right now, it's basically just a backlog um, accumulator. It's just a way of playing a, a kind of a decent backlog of PlayStation uh, games. But, you know, uh, one that uh, I think a lot of people have probably already played the games on there. So it doesn't seem as viable as as Game Pass. It's also not available everywhere. Like PlayStation oh, now is not. No, it's not available in Australia. Oh, well, that doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> I can I imagine can't... that being a problem. <laughs> yeah, can't even play it. Yeah, it's got limited countries on PlayStation now, so it's a bit strange. They must have run into some issues or something with the rollout, I don't know. We also have pretty average internet down here. So, Yeah, yeah. well, one thing that they're, they're trying to push with PlayStation now is the ability to download games as opposed to stream them, which is what they were doing originally. So if you, if you live in Australia, like Jaden... Uh, streaming games probably not the best idea because Australian internet is notoriously not good. But you know, uh, with Game Pass, you can. I'm pretty sure you can download the games at least on PC. You can just download the game, so you don't need to worry about streaming. If you don't have a great internet connection, you can play these games offline. So I think again, it's another huge bonus. As much as I prefer PlayStation, I think Xbox Game Pass is leagues ahead of PlayStation now. And even PlayStation Plus. And I think if PlayStation want to kind of capitalize on the streaming kind of, um, not streaming, the subscription model kind of boom that's going on at the moment, uh, they should probably improve PlayStation now and maybe bring it to Australia. That would probably be a good idea. Um, Yeah, definitely. So I I can definitely sympathize with uh, Mr. Hyder's bad internet. Canada is also not so great with the internet. Uh, And (laughs) yeah. And uh, before we finish off uh, to some more fun type questions, um, I want to talk a bit about um, the Chinese uh, video game market and its influence on the West uh, video game market. For example, uh, Genshin Impact and uh, before that, what I think was uh, Honkai Impact. Those games did really well here. And also the fact that uh, Diablo, I think it's also being made in China, made by a Chinese uh, developer and published on the mobile platform. So what is the Chinese market influence on the global gaming industry. I think you've got um, companies like I might be wrong on this Tencent, which I believe are Chinese. Yes, is that right? Yeah. So they uh, own um, uh, big portions of Epic. I think forty um, percent. I think it is. Yeah, you know, 
I think you are getting a lot of kind of um, the Chinese video game market kind of influencing uh, a lot of uh, Western uh, video game kind of production and stuff like Genshin Impact and uh, Honkai Impact, which are both by uh, Miho. I think is is that I think that's the oh, right don't name. Don't worry, I'm I can't sure. even pronounce it. <laughs> um, you know, uh, these these games are huge, and I think a big part of that, with especially with Honkai Impact, was the fact that it was it was mobile and it was kind of a big kind of uh, flashy game for mobile. But also, I, I think Western audiences are maybe becoming more receptive to kind of uh, Chinese and and Japanese video games a lot more than I think they were even kind of five or you know uh, ten years ago. You're getting you're seeing games like. Um, uh, for example, Persona Five, which I know is Japanese, but you know that is becoming kind of increasingly uh, more popular uh, and getting huge kind of Western audiences' uh, interest. So I think there's definitely uh, a growing marketplace for you know for 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 Chinese video game uh, kind of influence to come in. I mean, there was that game on Steam uh, recently that uh, I think it's a game that's entirely in Chinese that just blew up it got like loads of reviews loads of people were buying it in the west i can't remember the name but yeah it saw huge success and um as a result we've actually seen more and more chinese games being added onto steam as a result because i think there's kind of now more of an audience than maybe there ever was before okay i i, I see i definitely see that because i think my friend was actually playing that other game you mentioned but i also can't remember its name so yeah, I think that 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 sums it up pretty well. And um, now we can move on to the more fun questions, I guess. Um, so <laughs> yeah, uh, to any one of you, so what is the first uh, anime or game that made you uh, click? Let's say, and uh, and those are from the students, by the way. And say that's what I like, and that's what I want to pursue. Oh, that's a good one. The first anime or game? I feel like the first anime that made me really go. Oh man, this is good. Uh, I watched a lot of Full Metal Alchemist when I was younger. Oh, really? The like okay. original Full Metal Alchemist. I haven't seen Brotherhood. Not, not the good one. The good one, in my opinion. <laughs> I haven't seen Brotherhood. Uh, for me, I'm a I'm an original purist. But that you know, uh, my brother's friend kind of ripped it on a DVD for us to watch, and you know, it was something that like we weren't really exposed to uh, when we were kind of that age. That was huge for me, and I remember kind of super getting into that. And obviously, uh, Studio Ghibli as well uh, was kind of a huge part of my life uh, growing up, and I think was one of the kind of the the main kind of anime influences that then sort of got me interested in kind of talking about it and writing about it and whatever. But um, in terms of video games, uh, I I don't know. I can't think of. Maybe the original Halo. I played a lot of the original Halo when I was younger. Probably shouldn't have, but uh, I played a lot of the original Halo. And stuff like Animal Crossing and, and Pokemon and kind of the early Mario games uh, definitely were kind of some of my first exposure to it and kind of what got me interested in in video games as kind of a medium. Yeah, yeah I think one of my first anime and games sort of thing Ties back to Nintendo 64 because that was my first console. And I played a lot of Pokemon. So I yeah. think po Pokemon Stadium, Pokemon Snap, uh, a lot of them influenced 
especially because it was one of my first animes I loved as a kid as well. So like Pokemon was definitely one of the things that's always influenced. I'm sure that's influenced a lot of people in like this generation as well. It's been a pretty massive franchise um, for a long time. But yeah, that was basically one of the first things that was like, yeah, uh, I love Pokemon, simple as. Yeah, I, I yeah. see. Because uh, I, I do remember even in my childhood, Pokemon was always playing like on TV, even in China. So it's definitely Pokemon. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Um, my next question is actually regarding a game that's a... Oh, by the way, I think we're going to get a lot of um, a lot of comments on the fact that uh, Mr. Wilson doesn't like uh, Fullmetal Alchemist uh, Brotherhood. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Um, I will watch it eventually. Uh, but it's it's an entirely nostalgia-based thing. It's something I watched as a kid. I know that Brotherhood is supposed to be better, and I'm sure it is. And I will get around to it. But right now, I'm just enjoying the. I hope you. Um, I hope you get taken out of context. The part where you said, "Oh, I don't like it." I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can put that in the intro if you guys like. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Uh, yeah i i do hope we don't get too much hate on that um uh and next question is actually regarding your opinion on five nights at freddy's so what do you guys think about five nights at freddy's i've only played the first one uh because i um i don't deal well with horror games but i think five nights at freddy's is a it's kind of this incredible you know, story about kind of uh, an indie developer kind of rising up and kind of becoming super successful and is definitely one of the kind of the, my kind of first memories of an indie game being picked up by YouTubers and then as a result becoming like this huge successful franchise. I think it's super interesting. You know, the guy who made it, if I remember correctly, he was like making kind of Christian based video games uh, prior to making Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, and then uh, I think was kind of criticized that his characters looked a little kind of creepy and kind of took that and ran with it and made Five Nights at Freddy's. I think that's the story. I might be wrong on that. I do apologize uh, if I am. But Five Nights at Freddy's is a super creative game. It's super interesting, uh, very, very scary, um, but a lot of fun, especially late at night with the lights off. I still think the first one holds up today as being quite a terrifying game. Yeah, Mr. Hyland. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah. yeah, I haven't actually really checked out Five Nights at Freddy's that much. I'm more of a. I don't play a lot of horror games, and that's not on the fact that I get scared of them. It's actually on the fact that I don't <laughs> actually get scared of them that much. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big magic. Uh, no, no. We'll get there. <laughs> um, but I think it's I don't get scared of them because I played horror in VR, and then. After playing it in virtual reality, I don't think anything's as scary as that. <laughs> okay. I can't, I can't go. Anything else just doesn't quite feel as like real. I feel a little bit disconnected in comparison. So, um, but I definitely will be checking the newest one because that's coming to VR. Uh, Five Nights at Freddy's Security Breach. So that one's going to be pretty um, scary. I think. I, I don't think I personally would be able to handle any horror games in VR. That just uh, seems, yeah. That's a bit it's too an much. interesting experience. You won't be scared of anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess uh, next question: What do you do you think about Twitch and uh, live streaming? Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's one of the greatest things to happen on the internet. I feel like it's such a 
an incredible way of kind of communi- uh, communicating with your like communities and kind of uh, building kind of, I don't know, kind of you feel closer with the, the, the people that you're kind of talking to. I know personally I've had some great experiences uh, watching other people on Twitch and kind of kind of bonding and having a good time there. You know, we know um, a few people ourselves that are like Twitch streamers and stuff. I think it's just, uh, I think it's just great. I think it's really fun. There's loads of really cool, different kind of, uh, you know, like types of content on Twitch. Basically, got something for everyone. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really good. Yeah, I like Twitch as well. I've never actually like live stream, like done a live stream myself or streamed on Twitch, but I definitely, yeah. Completely agree with what Tom's saying. It's a really good place to engage and whatnot. So I think one day the game creator will probably do something along those lines. But for now, oh yeah, absolutely. Really yeah, like if it, you guys so. do that, I, I look forward to it. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you, yeah. thank you. <laughs> um, next question: Have you watched the anime Demon Slayer, and what do you think? I have yeah. not. I have oh. not. Have you? <laughs> of course, man. I'm cultured. Right. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I did hear about the um. The 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 latest movie kind of beat uh, Spirited Away is the most the nice highest already grossing oh my anime God. movie I think yeah yeah, yeah. which was super um, interesting I haven't seen the movie and I wanted to actually watch it like as soon as possible but I just haven't had the opportunity um, I love the anime and I know the manga is um, incredibly successful as well but yeah I I think it's an awesome anime I. Don't, I don't want to. I don't know if I. I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I don't really want to say without spoilers. Um, but it's awesome. And if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend going and checking out. It's basically like an amalgamation of like heaps of different anim- like the best parts of heaps of different animes. Yeah, I, I think, all in one. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I think yeah. we was also get a lot of hate for Mister Wilson not watching the show. Um, oh no! Okay. It's <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I feel like my opinion on anime will never be respected ever again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, he won't be covering any anime on the game credit. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> I was going to. I had plans. <laughs> well, um anyway, besides anime and um Mr. Wilson not watching the the shows that he's supposed to watch. Uh <laughs> Actually, a, a more serious question um, from the students. How much are you concerned about uh, politi- uh, politicization of entertainment journalism? Oh, interesting question. <laughs> um, this is a tough one. I feel like, oh man, where, where do you even begin with this question without upsetting anyone? Uh, I feel like, obviously, everyone is entitled to their own opinion and i feel like as kind of an entertainment outlet or a publication or whatever i feel like you're entitled to your own opinion about the things that you're covering i feel like if you happen to cover something political if you do an opinion piece on it then fine obviously put your own opinion because that's the opinion of the author uh opinion pieces are never representative of the uh publication it's usually just of the author uh and if you're doing news then obviously be you know uh unbiased and cover it objectively i feel like the biggest issue is usually uh via twitter <laughs> that's where most of the controversy kind of arrives 
I feel like if you've got the platform to, you know, speak out against injustice and kind of all the terrible things that are happening in the world, and you've got people who are going to listen. Personally, I think it's great if you use that platform for good, if you use that platform for hate and, uh, yeah, uh, just for for not good things, then, uh, yeah, it's, man, uh, this is a difficult one to broach. Basically, speak out if you've got a good thing to say. Maybe don't say anything if you've got a bad thing to say. And I know, obviously, what's bad and good is subjective. Um, I don't know. I don't, yeah, maybe, I don't, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is Tough a difficult question. question. <laughs> I think I support the idea of it. Um, but similar to what Tom's saying, I think there's a difference between um, stating your opinions in articles and journalism and being aggressive towards, like, sort of, you can say, you can state your opinion with supportive arguments and facts. Um, and I think there's a difference between that um, and some articles that have been coming out um, recently and stuff like that, where it's more just seems more aggressive rather than an opinion. And I think that's where. I think that's where the concern lies. I think where you get you're getting aggressive about an opinion, you can't. I think every piece has to be you, you should, like more of a debate. Like you should be able to see the other side but disagree, um, rather than like I hate the other side and completely my way is right and that's the way to go. So I think there needs to go, and I think you need to be able to see both wise and opinion pieces, and like that is just yeah the way it is and. That is my opinion. Okay, I feel like that answer was way better than mine. (laughs) It's a very hard question to answer. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, some general questions, again, which I think will still piss people off if they're listening. Uh, PC or console? Uh, Console. It's easier. You don't have to worry about your laptop not being able to run certain games. Yeah, I uh, 100% console. I'm pretty split, actually. But I think I'm going to go console. I think depends what console, I think. Like, I have a PS5. Yeah. Oh, PlayStation. PlayStation's the right console. <laughs> yeah. but, so I have a PS5, so I'd say that over anything. Um, but I'd probably, there was a period there where I did prefer my PC over my PS4. But I think that was on the basis of it being outdated. So I was more just going, oh, well, I'm sick of my PS4 being laggy through the UI, whereas my PC is just fine. But now that I have a PS5, yeah, I've never looked back. Okay. <laughs> I see. Uh, again, the opinion on the PS5 and the fact it's console over PC, it's still going to uh, anger a lot of people, but we'll get past that. Uh, I, do, I do apologize for all my controversial opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Please forgive me. And uh, I guess for PC gaming... Uh, some students ask the question, Intel or AMD processors? I think... I have, no idea. <laughs> um, I, have um, I don't really have like a preference. I think at the end of the day, I sort of look at what's cheaper. I did, however, build my PC with AMD. So I don't know if that can be um, towards the AMD side. Generally here in Australia, AMD is cheaper and I don't... The only reason I don't get Intel is just basis on the fact that it's Price. way more expensive. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I guess, Mr. Wilson, you just play on console, so there's no problem over here. 
Uh, yeah, I I mainly play on console. I mean, I've got a, a a laptop, and I just got whatever I was told was the best <laughs> one. So I've no I, idea. <laughs> you probably have Intel, and I can't believe it. Yes, I have Intel Core <laughs> i7 8th Gen. Apparently, that's probably not very good. People are probably going to criticize me for my 8th Gen Core i7. I think it's only because it's like 2.2 gigahertz or something, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we got uh, <laughs> that email. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I guess uh, that's it for all my questions. And um, it was really fun talking to you, too. And thank you for coming on. It has been. Oh, a pleasure. Yeah, it has been a blast, honestly. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, thank it you. Was no, it was awesome. Yeah, it's good fun. Well, thank you again. Thank you guys for coming on the show.